Nicole. Good morning once again, and as we said, happy Mother's Day. We good? Is it on? Okay. So, we are in what would be the fourth Sunday in Easter, or Eastertide, as you may have heard it called, depending on what traditions you've come from, or maybe you're like, wait, I thought Easter was one Sunday and we've moved on. Um, if you've been around Mosaic for some time, you know that's not the case. We try to sit in Easter for a while, and what we try to do is we are trying to cultivate together as a people a practice of rejoicing and of celebrating. And I just want to say this briefly, that that is part of what Mother's Day can be for a lot of us. Because the reality of it is, is that it is sometimes a choice to see the joy and the excitement in the things that we are in front of us. Mother's Day for a lot of us may not always feel that way, as Rachel said, and she did a, a wonderful and eloquent job of articulating that. But I think it, it coincides with what we're talking about in Easter and what it means to choose joy and to choose celebration. It does not mean that we ignore grief or belittle it or like put it to the sidelines. What we're saying is believers in our life, we hold those things in tension together. And that sometimes a practice that we have to take on and that we have to allow to uh, participate in so that we might be formed and shaped into Christ's likeness is sometimes celebration. Sometimes it's joy. And it's, it, there's a maturing factor there. And there's a thing that happens there where we step into that and we say, we're going to rejoice in this moment. We're going to celebrate even when I don't always feel like it. And I'm not going to keep caveating it. You know what I'm saying. And so it's part of, I think it's beautiful when this falls together. In our time in Easter, in Eastertide, we've been going through the book of Galatians. And I'm going to give some reminders of what's going on in Galatia. And the reason for this is because this is a letter. And so it would have been intended that you would have heard this in one setting. This was written to uh, multiple churches in southern Galatia. And so they would have gotten this letter much in the same way that, you know, back in the day you would have gotten a letter and you would have read it out loud to your family or something. Or, or you would have read it all in one moment in the way you would get something and you would enjoy it and it would all be connected. And so it helps to continually remind ourselves of what is happening and what's going on and why we're here also, if Anna were in this space and not in the back volunteering in children's ministry, she would tell you that it's my first time preaching in the series and that I have to give my own introduction. So you take which one you want to take. Maybe it's a little bit of both, right, in classic fashion. But I'll try and be quick in this recap. So Paul is mad. You sense this. There's an energy behind what he's writing in Galatians. And Kyle did a really great job in the first week of discussing the different details of this, the persecution that has happened to Paul in southern Galatia. And he's mad because he's writing to this group of people that we are reading uh, that are called Gentiles. I'm willing to bet, I don't know all of your histories perfectly, but 98% of us would probably be a safe bet in this room would all be Gentiles. And what we mean by that and what Paul means by Gentiles is that they are culturally and ethnically non-Jewish. And so some of you may have some ethnically Jewish background, and, and even some of you may still participate in cultural uh, customs that are from that background. But most of us, we too are Gentiles. 
And what Paul is saying to these Gentiles that have become Christians is that you're going back to something that you don't need to go back to. That there's a new way that has been formed. And so what he wants them to know is that they need to stop reverting back to this other way of existing and being. That there is no like right way of, or, or a test that they need to pass. Okay, that there's no uh, a, a scent of knowledge that they need to pertain to or no cultural or ethnical norms that they need to take on. So hear this, too. He's not mad at them because they're doing something that is like egregious. In fact, he's going to go on and later say that the law is good. Jewish people are good. The practices are good. There's nothing wrong with them. He's mad because what he's seeing is a group of people that are missing out on the incredible experience of Jesus Christ and the life that he has for them. This life in the spirit. He's not mad because they can't pass a test or because they did something that was out of the bounds of what he thinks now all of a sudden should be Christianity. That's not the case. He's mad. He's frustrated because the Galatians are returning to a way of life that existed before the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the life of the Spirit. So hear me on this. It is not that the law was bad. It is that they are returning back to an old way of existing. Why are they returning to this? Why are they going back to this way of, of functioning and operating that is causing them to miss out on the deep and abundant life that Jesus intends for them, a life full of the Spirit? And Paul is about to talk about the Spirit a whole bunch in Galatians. Like this whole second half, he's going to just drill this home, that there's this life in the Spirit that is intended for you. They're going back to this old way of existing because culturally and socially at this moment, it was a very anxious and unsettling moment. Things were in upheaval. There was disruption. And this Christian movement coming out of the, the Jewish tradition, not quite called, they wouldn't call it Christian yet. The sect of Judaism that's moving out of the Jewish movement is causing people to wrestle with what they've believed their whole lives and what they've been told to believe. There's a shift that is happening. There's a reformation that's happening amongst the people of God. The politics at hand are on shifting sands. You're starting to sense Rome is coming to its peak. The Roman-Jewish war is about to happen. Just a few years, Jerusalem will be sacked and destroyed and moved on with. There is tension that you can feel. There's a cultural unsettledness about it. There's an anxious and an anxiety culturally. And this is backed up by lots of other writings that Jesus kind of comes into this moment in the early ADs, right? It's called, in the scholarly talk, we'll say uh, the Second Temple Judaism is this kind of era. And there's all these other writings that exist in Second Temple Judaism that aren't in our scriptures. And some of it's Jewish and some of it's been picked up by Orthodox and Catholic believers. We call this the Apocrypha, if you've ever heard of this. I was raised to believe that that was terrible and that we shouldn't read it at all, like, you know, because we weren't Catholics. But it's just, it would be like reading a bunch of people that have written now about good, solid theology and things that have happened, okay? And so it's helpful, and you read this, and you get this sense that there, like, 
they're very unsettled about what they're supposed to believe. They're very unsettled about what's happening culturally, what's happening in their faith and in their spirituality. And when we become unsettled and we become anxious, what we as humanity are predisposed to doing is to getting into this like fear in our own anxiety. And we take on the cultural anxiety and we become fearful of what might be. And when we become fearful and anxious as human beings, what we naturally do is we reach out for control. And we try to control what's going on around us. We try to make certain that we are able to manifest our own destiny, right? That we can make the shape and form that we think we should become because everything scary so I have to then take on to myself what I must define you heard me say this a million times if you've been around like this is going back to Genesis 3 this is the this is the sin this is what we fall back to again and again that we would reach out for ourselves and we will define what is good and evil and this is what's happening to the new Christians in Galatia they're being told by different teachers that what they need to do is that they need to find themselves in a space and a place Jewish traditions and the way things were. And they're, and they're being offered this way of control and, and to be controlled. And they're looking for answers and concrete, uh, kind of something to rest on, something to give themselves to in an age of anxiety. But Paul is saying... That as followers of Jesus Christ, one, uh, as a group of people, as an individual that gives themselves over to this resurrection life, that that is not the shape and the form that God would intend you to take on and have. Not a posture of fear. Not a posture of control. Not a posture of trying to fit into a certain mold or idea. But that you would take on the form and the shape that Christ and that God intended for you to take. And that is one of freedom in the life of the Spirit. And so we see that in this, what Paul thinks is that if you take on the life of the Spirit and you allow that to overwhelm you and you give up freedom, you give up control, that then you live into something that we call good news, the gospel. You give yourself over to something that can challenge and redeem the world around it. But when the world is in anxiety and uncertainty and frustration and fear, what they do not want is challenge. And so the world longs for us to live into a Christianity that is comfortable and safe for them to define. But if you live into that, what Paul is saying is that is not good news because this kind of Christianity, the Christianity that the Galatians are going back to, this way of living and being, is a way of living and being that exists without the necessity of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, which is a life that exists without the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And he is saying repeatedly with great passion that if you are going to live a life that exists without the necessity of the Holy Spirit, then that is no life to live at all. That you are being pushed into living in such a way that you are reliant upon the hope and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so then, if the Galatians will take on this life, take on this spirit, and live into this shape and form, the spirit will fill them and indwell within them 
in such a way that they then can actually be good news to a wanting and waiting world. I love the phrase that you can be a non-anxious presence in an age of anxiety. Do you see now why we would be in Galatians in 2022? In Easter season, when Paul is saying everything is predicated on the fact and the idea that this resurrection of Jesus Christ actually changes everything about the way you interact and function in the world. Who you are, your being and your existence must change because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are living in such a way that you can do it without the truth of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are not living into what God would intend and have for you. You are living in such a way that is low on the Spirit and low on the cross. And Paul is imploring them to live in such a way that is full of the Spirit, that resembles the cross, and that is abundant into the life of the resurrection because he's saying this is what is available for you. He is not mad at them because they have broken some arbitrary rule. He is not upset with them because they have stepped out of some invisible line that he has drawn. We mispaint Paul in this way sometimes. I'm one of the critiques. Sometimes Paul says some things. I'm like, oh, you know, I probably wouldn't quote in the 20th century, 21st century. But we misunderstand his passion, I think. It's not one of anger because they've like failed a moral test. It's one of sadness as a teacher that knows what's available to them in the life of Christ and he knows they're missing out on it. Because he knows for certain that there are only certain things that can happen through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that is true of society and of history, but it is also true of you and me. There are certain things in our lives, there are certain shapes and forms that we are meant to take on that we can only take on if we live into and put on this resurrected life of Jesus. Which means our lives have to look a little bit different. It means we function and operate in a different way, which means we don't give ourselves to fear and hand-wringing and anxiety. And as someone that can struggle with anxiety, okay, I'm preaching to the crowd here. Like we function and operate in a different way in the life of Christ. And here's what's crazy about all of this. This whole reason he's even in Galatia is because of a detour. He never intended to be here. We have this whole book of the Bible because his path didn't go the way that he thought it should. He, he didn't get to do the things that he thought he should do. And he ends up in Galatia and he ends up being persecuted in this place. And these gr this group of people come to know the Lord on his detour. And instead of giving himself over to frustration and questioning and all of these things, why am I here? He finds himself in the place that he is and he worships the Lord and he does the thing that God has called him to do. And in so doing, this group of people comes to know Jesus. And then a few years later or months when he's frustrated that they aren't doing the things that he had taught them to do and preached to them about, we get the letter of Galatians. So he continues his line of argument in our passage this morning. Because what he's saying is the point is that our new identity in creation is that all who believe in Jesus, who trust in his faithfulness, that give themselves and trust in action to the faithfulness of Jesus, are a part of the family of God. 
And he wants to make clear that there is one family of Abraham, not two. That God promised one family to Abraham, not two families, or multiple families, or cousins and sisters, then stepsisters and uncles that are kind of engrafted in. One family. And they use this language of seed in Galatians. And this is like direct lineage. There's one direct lineage from the promise all the way back in Genesis to what we're stepping into now and experiencing. And so remember, part of the tension here that Paul's addressing with this, when he says these things, when there is one family, what he is saying here, when there's one direct lineage, is he's saying whether you are ethnically and culturally Jewish or Gentile, it does not matter all part of the same family. Paul's point is that God promised one family not to, and that that family would not be defined by cultural, gender, or ethnical, ethnic, ethnical norms, but it would be defined by the trust into Jesus' faithfulness. And so in verse 23, he is talking about his Jewish faith. And he's talking about the faithfulness of Jesus. He's saying, before the coming of this faith, we, the Jews, were held in custody under the law. Before the coming of what what faith? The faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of God embodied and represented by Jesus. Before Jesus came, he's squishing together here in these few verses this uh, multi-use of the Greek word of faith here. Saying, before the faithfulness of Jesus came... And the following trust of his followers, their faith back into his faithfulness, the law was something that left them in this certain space. Now he uses a language of being imprisoned or in jail, and that is again, not because he is talking about the law and the Jewish tradition in that negative of a light. He is not wanting to say that the law was terrible and it was like a prison, He's writing to a certain group of people in a certain context in history. And at that time, the common kind of social or cultural understanding for the Jewish people was that they were in slavery once again. So think of the Exodus story, all this. People brought out of slavery. They're brought into Jerusalem. They, they are given the promised land. They develop a nation. You guys know the history. They go back into exile. They come back into Jerusalem, but at this point, like, they're going, this is not the freedom that we meant to have. What he's saying to them is that before Jesus came, we, the people of God, were living in slavery in Jerusalem. We had not fulfilled the promise. We had not received the freedom that Yahweh had intended that the people of God would live and operate in, and Jesus came to set a whole new way of existence and being. He came to allow us to live into something else. And this is why this matters. And why it, we, we talk about it is because unfortunately what we have done in Galatians is we've made this whole conversation about being law and then now having this new freedom in Jesus. We've made it about this like whole like anti-works. It, it's just salvation and faithfulness and all this. And you guys are maybe familiar with this, or, or maybe you're going like, I don't know what you're talking about. But this is a popular section or book of the Bible where we really get this whole idea that it's like, well, it's Jesus plus nothing else. Hear me. 
Paul is making clear that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. But this idea, this wrestling with the faithfulness, and the he's not condemning the law. He's not saying that the law was pointless, that you should, never should have stepped into the practices that God intended for his people to practice. But it's not about works in the way that we think it is. See, the problem is when we make it about works in the way that we think it is, that then we make salvation this really individualistic kind of like me. As long as I kind of believe, as long as I kind of uh, say, yeah, like I believe in Jesus, then like I'm good, bro. Like, I don't, you, you can't tell me what to do. Only God can judge me. Don't, don't, no, don't challenge me. Don't tell me to give my money. Don't tell me to pray more. Because that's works, man. We don't, we don't want to have works. We're Protestant. We gave up works. And so we do this. And we, and we make our salvation and our participation in the kingdom of God very individualistic. Like me and my faith in Jesus. And you're over there. And then what that allows us to do, or what it begins happening, is that then we like start to make salvation about just like this kind of thing that happens at the end, right? And heaven becomes this platonic form of being and existence that is the purest and truest form that we might be able to exist in. And our lives here become about a moral test and about morality. But then who defines morality, right? Well, I get to define it because it's about me. And then salvation becomes about this angry God that's just mad that creation can't live up to his high moral standard. And so he gets mad and he just says, fine, I'll do it myself and get out of my way. But Paul would never intend for the gospel to be thought of in that way. The faithfulness of Jesus is so much bigger than that because what he intends is that we would begin to understand and step into that this salvation that he is offering is about a group of people that respond to the faithfulness of Jesus and that that would have impact here and now. And yes, if you are a follower of Jesus, there are things that are going to be asked of you that you would live in such a way that it would resemble the cross of Jesus and that you would live in such a way that would require the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere and to sustain you in those, mo in those moments. And when we have this understanding of salvation, it's personal and individual, in an age of identity politics and all that goes with our like, individualistic selves, like this is who I am, don't tell me anything, then what we begin to do is very similar to what is happening in Galatia, is that we begin to define ourselves as Christians. We're really good about salvation. Salvation is just Jesus plus nothing. But we really want to define ourselves as something plus Christian. I want to define myself as, you know, whatever. So you can think of some things here. We'll fill in the blanks, right? I'm an ex-evangelical. I'm an evangelical. I'm a conservative Christian. I'm a liberal Christian. I'm a white Christian. I'm an anti-racist Christian. We start to define all these things and say this is how we live into the type of Christianity that we think we need to have. We're not all that different. We're not all that far from what is happening in Galatia. And this is the reason. If I can keep going back to Genesis 3, the reality of it is, is Satan does not have a lot of tricks. But the tricks he has are just really, really good, unfortunately. 
and we go back to the same problems. And in fear, we begin to mark people off. When you get anxious, when you get uncertain and insecure, what is much easier, and let me give you a live example. This is off the top of my head. Parenting, okay? It's Mother's Day. We'll talk about parenting for a second. What is really, really easy when you get insecure about your parenting is to start to name and put every other parent in boxes and categories because it makes you feel better about yourself. Well, they're that kind of parent, and I would never do that. They're this kind of parent, and that's the kind of parent I want to be. So these are good people, and I'm a good person because you're insecure and you're afraid of who you are. Trust me, maybe other parents don't experience it. I'd experience it deep from toe to head, and I'm a big person, so it's a lot of, there's a lot of that going on there. But it's easier to categorize them and to name them and to say, that's who they are, and I'm not that. And for me, that's my tendency to sin. I don't necessarily want to put a title in front of my Christian, but I, I want to put an anti-title. I'm not that type of Christian. I'm not the Christian that I was like raised in in church in high school, okay? That's not the kind of Christian I am. And like, I feel this tendency to start to want to wave that flag when people are dunking on Christians on social media. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, no, 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 no. I'm not that kind of Christian. Like, look at me over here. But that's not the call of the gospel. It's Jesus. And, and to, to define ourselves off of the life that Jesus would give to us. And so here's how I can know that what I'm saying is true and that it's not just my opinion. Quick, like, understanding of what's happening here. In verse 24... In the Greek, or in our text, what you see is, so the law was our guardian. That's the way the modern NIV translation uh, does this word. If you word, ask Grant or Kyle, or if Wes was here, they would pronounce the Greek word for you. It's something like apagadagados. I don't know. I'm not going to attempt to say it. They're much smarter than I am and can give you the actual one, okay? So, I think it's pagadagados is the way I would say it if I was forced to. Uh, this one literal translation for us in our society is babysitter, would be a better way of understanding this. In previous translations, they have really, so guardian is a decent translation in the new NIV. Uh, the new ES, the most updated ESV will use guardian as well. If you start going back into older translations, they use things like tutor or teacher. Um, uh, disciplinarian is one of the translations that it often gets. And it's a kind of a negative misunderstanding of this word in Jewish culture. What a pagadagados was, or whatever the word is, I don't know. Um, don't ask me to say Giannis's last name either, okay? So, like, what it was, it was this person in wealthy families that was charged or tasked with taking the sons from point A to point B. Because the, the rulers and the parents in wealthy families, like, they didn't have time. So... It's the nanny in the pickup line at school. It's the driver for the high school kid that, like, is more than capable of taking care of himself, but he can't get from school and back, and mom's too busy with her social clubs, and dad's working 60 hours a week, and they're wealthy enough that they can afford to have somebody take them back and forth to school. But the point is, is that you would graduate from this. And in this society, that wasn't a bad thing, and none of us would say that's a bad thing. I painted it in a little bit of a negative light with the, my tone of voice there and the examples I used. Uh, that's because when I'm trugging up at 1 o'clock to pick up my kids from school at All Saints and I see all the nannies and the grandmas picking them up, I'm like, that must be nice. <laughs> I start categorizing them, you know, and I'm putting them over there because of my insecurities and my frustrations with what I've done on my work day with four hours, all right? And so 
But this is a normal thing, and, and no one would think of anything other. It's a good thing. And so Paul is not saying that the law is something terrible. The law is saying that it, it had a role to play for the Jewish people. It brought them to the place that they needed to be. And now you are given a life in the Spirit. So why would you go back? Why would you go back to being that way? Think back to when you got your driver's license. I don't know, very, there may be one or two, but I don't know very many people that finally got that freedom at like 17 or 18, even if they got it late. You know, they were hesitant, they didn't want to do it. They would be like, man, you know what I would love to go back to is when my dad had to drive me everywhere. That was awesome. No, you were thankful for your dad. You loved it. You enjoyed it. But you wouldn't want to go back. You get to college and you're like, man, I don't know very many people like, you know what I'd like to go back to is when I had a curfew and my mom knew everything that was going on and she read all my text messages all the time. Like, no, you don't want to go back to that. You enjoy your freedom. So Paul is employing, imploring them. Do not go back to who you were. Do not go back to that. Be reminded that you are first and foremost a believer in Jesus, and you are first and foremost given this gift and this life in the Spirit. And we do not need to go back to the cultural and ethic, ethic norms that define us. And boy, have we done that in our history, that we make Christianity about our cultural norms, our ethnic norms, our societal norms. And we say, this is what it means to be a good Christian. And Paul's saying, why would you confine it like that? Here's what a babysitter doesn't do. A babysitter doesn't take you on wild adventures. A babysitter doesn't, like, you know, they're not the ones that take you on all the fun things. A babysitter comes to the house and is like, no, your parents are paying me to make sure you get from point A to point B. And what God is inviting us into is wild adventure with him. A babysitter does not give you freedom. The father gives you freedom. The mother gives you freedom. You're free to be different in a different kind of way when you're with your parents. And then you're free to be different in a different kind of way when you're actually out on your own. And what Paul is saying is that as the spirit dwells within you, you're free to go and take on the shape and form that Christ intended you to take on. But that life has to be one that is defined upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And if in so doing, you take this on, you step into the lineage, into the seed of the family that God had always intended to make for himself. And what Paul is saying is that God is making that family because God does what he says he will do. It does not always look like what we want it to. It does not always seem exactly like we thought it should seem, but God will do the thing that he says he is going to do. Now, jumping to the end of where we were today, the end of chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, I just want to say this briefly because this matters. Uh, the NIV mixed it here a little bit, and I, I appreciated how they did that, that the, they're talking about sons, and then it, it, they, they went to children, the more gender-inclusive and plural understanding of that, and that's good. Because it is an invitation to men and women alike. But we can't translate it all to children because sons specifically is talking about the inheritance that they were intended to receive and that we are intended to receive. We are intended to operate and function like Christ as we receive the Spirit of God, which is our down payment for our inheritance. So we as children, men and women, 
get to function the way a son in first century Judaism would have gotten to function when they got their inheritance. Unfortunately, women didn't get inheritance at that time. So using children there wouldn't make that much of a difference. This matters because earlier, part of the verses that I skipped over quickly was that he talks about that there is no slave or no Greek nor Jew, no man or woman, right? Slave or free, Greek or Jew, man or woman. Again, what he's stressing here is not that you do not come as man or woman. And in fact, the way he even words man or woman would remind you of Genesis 1. If you were really familiar with the Hebrew, you'd go, oh, both man and woman are created in God's image. He is not arguing that Christianity take on a completely gender-neutral form and that, no. What he's saying is that your norms as a man or a woman do not define you as a Christian. Jesus defines you as a Christian, and you bring that with you. This matters in culture. Your culture does not define you as a Christian. Jesus defines you as a Christian, and we as a church have to do a better job of creating space for those different cultures to have leadership and voice up front. We need to have space where we can hear from women talk about Mother's Day and talk about the Bible and that we can hear women pray over us because they image God and there is a mother heart of God just like there is a father heart of God and we need that and that is the church. So we do not erase those defining lines. I'm trying to create a, a, a colorblind society. That would be terrible for the church. We want to see people for who they are and bring all of them in with it. But we know that we bring it in under the name of Jesus and that we have one family and one church. Now in all of this, I think what is the most important thing that I would take from any of what we're talking about and what Paul is trying to get us, if we are one family and we are one church, then we would stand boldly and confidently in that life of the resurrection in the name of Jesus. And the reality of it is, is that the, oftentimes we find ourselves uh, not wanting to do that for a myriad of reasons. There is anxiety, there is fear, there is all of this. If their story is true of us today because of the same tricks that get used over and over again and because of the way humanity operates and functions, then the answer is living as this non-anxious presence, as this non-fearful presence, as people that don't need to define themselves by what they are or are not, but simply define themselves and pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. And the way I think this works for us, okay, and the way I think this can operate and function for us, is that as we know we are just God's faithfulness, justifies us and our response as Jesus followers is to trust in that faithfulness and live a life in such a way that is necessitated by the cross death and resurrection of Jesus and the spirit that indwells within us then that begins to give us a hope and an excitement that would because here's the reality we're all going to want to go back this is the story of God this is a new exodus picture in Galatians and we're going to talk about exodus this summer and the crazy part about Exodus is that every time they kind of see God move, they get a little complacent and they want to go back or they want to say, is this really even worth it? And I think many of us oftentimes find ourselves wondering, like, well, should we just, should we just give up on all of this in general? 
Should we just let it all go? Fear and anxiety and frustration and hurt and pain and suffering. Is it really even worth it? But here's the thing. Is that I think you and I wouldn't be sitting in this space if we didn't taste and know how good it is. And so I think you need to hear this morning with Paul. Do not go back. Why would you go back? You know what he is capable of. You know who God is. You have stood on the dry sea and walked across. Maybe not literally. God knows I have metaphorically. I have gone through where there was no way. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So why, oh why would I ever go back? Why would I give up on this life? of the resurrection and hope of Jesus. For all the pain and all the suffering, I think the church can be so much more. I was thinking of, and I asked her if I could use her as an example this morning, but we, we did a little graduation party, some of us up here, for Fiona Mullins. And if we all sit around and talk, we've all got some weird stories about youth group days, and God bless the Mullins family because there's been no youth group for these teenagers. And they've been blessed in lots of ways. And probably also struggled in lots of ways because they sit in here and listen to me preach the whole time and, you know, whatever. And Point being, when I watched her walk through that door Friday night and we surprised her, and she just kind of had this, like, shell-shocked look in her face. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was amazing. We're having this graduation party, and I just thought to myself in that very moment, it was like the Lord's kindness to me, what if there was a whole generation of kids that the weird youth group things, but it was a group of people that just rallied around him and supported him in life. Like, what if that was the story of all of us? And the pain and the hurt is real, but what if the story of the church was how good and kind the church can be? I think of Jameson a lot, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried, Judah, and like, I worry about them being PKs, but there was this moment the other day, Jameson was talking to the neighbor, and he wasn't weird about it. He was just like, Hey, we're about to have small group. You should come. And the neighbor kid was like, what, what small group? He's like, oh, it's when all my friends come over and we play in the back. And the kid was like, oh, what, what, like why do your friends come over? He's like, oh, because all my, like the, the adults, they all hang out and talk to each other. And it's really fun. You should come. Like, what if this is the image of the church? People that love each other and care for each other and show up for each other. That's my experience in the last decade plus. Sure, some of you have made me really mad. I'm not going to lie. I've been hurt by some of you. But I've also had you show up in my life in a multitude of ways where I've been able to walk through dry ground because of you. If the Lord didn't part the seas, you put me on your shoulders and you walked me across so that I didn't have to get wet. And you made a way where there was no way because the Lord has blessed you to bless others. And I think that's what the church can be when we live into this family of Christ. And each of you have this form and this shape that God longs to take on and to be and to exist that is predicated upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whatever we do this Easter season, do not go back. Do not give up on the resurrection life. But live fully into it. Commit to a way of being and existing that does not happen without Christ and his death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit that has been given to us to live and to operate. Live in such a way that that has to be true of your life.
And if you do, you will be a blessing to so many people because you have already been a blessing to me. I can tell you that it matters. And I can tell you that it's real and that it's good. And this is what Paul is imploring the people of Galatia to be and to do. As the band comes back up, they're going to play a song. And during that song, we want you to come and to take a piece of the bread and the cup and to hold on to those elements, go back to your seat. And at the end of the song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements. But what you need to understand that you're coming to receive and to participate in is God's faithfulness. This is the invitation to come and to trust in God's faithfulness and the work that he has done and the kindness that he has shown and the sacrifice that he has given. And you are coming and you are going to receive those elements. And if you in this moment find yourself wondering, can I trust in God's faithfulness? The small act of coming and receiving this elements is a step into that trust. It's saying we trust that God is who he says he is, that he is good, and that he longs to unite us and to bring us together. And so I invite you, if you feel that call in your heart and you long to live into that faithfulness and that trust of Jesus, come and take the elements. Come and receive what God did for us so that we might be this people that can live into this hope that we can experience what God intended us to experience in his resurrection life. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God.